you have been hearing a lot about the building of God over the past few months. And to me, that is probably one of the most glorious themes, if you can call it that, that the scripture unveils to us, that at the very center of God's heart, he wants to have a building that he can inhabit, but also that he can express himself through. And there is a consistent line of the building of God from the very opening of the scripture all the way to the end, from the Old Testament to the New Testament. You open up the book of Genesis, and in the second chapter, we're faced with the first mention of God's desire to have a building. We actually see the building right there. And what's the building in Genesis 2? It's Eve. In Hebrew, it says, and God took the rib and he built, built a woman. And then, of course, you have the building materials. And from there, you have this progressive unfolding of God's building work. After Eve, you have Abraham and you have his tent. And he's moving about in a tent. This is God's building. And from there it goes to the tabernacle of Moses. The building gets a little bit bigger. And of course that's glorious when you begin to look at the tabernacle of Moses, isn't it? All of it representing Christ in the church. And then you move further in history and it's now the temple of Solomon. And it's gotten even bigger. It takes up one whole acre. And then as you continue, you see Ezekiel has this vision of this glorious temple. It's huge. It's gigantic. It takes up four acres. It's gotten even bigger. And then you come into the New Testament and the building, the reality, makes his appearance. Christ is the temple and he is the tabernacle. And then, of course, in his resurrection, he gives birth to the building which comes right out of him, which is the church. And then we move into the book of Revelation and you've got this 1,500-mile cube, (laughs) New Jerusalem, and it takes up everything. But as you go back over that, there is a building of God that gets very little airplay. Between the tabernacle of Moses and the temple of Solomon, there is another building. And when most of us read the Old Testament, we just scoot right past it. But it's there. And it's called the Tabernacle of David. And to me, it is the most exciting, the most thrilling of all the pictures of God's building that the Lord paints in the Old Testament. It really is exciting. Sisters, when you see the Tabernacle of David and what it means, it will blow your hose off. It's that exciting. It's glorious. And we're going to go on a journey tonight, and I want you to move with me on an adventure throughout the history of Israel. And I want to bring you to this tabernacle that stands in between the Tabernacle of Moses and the Temple of Solomon. If we go back to about the year 750 B.C., we have a prophet named Amos. And at that time, the people of Israel have turned away from the Lord. They're in apostasy. They're committing idolatry. And the Lord gives Amos a word. Amos has the word of the Lord in his mouth, and he says this, I will restore the tabernacle of David, and I will close up the breaches, and I will rebuild it like in the days of old. Now, this is 200 years after David passed away. 
Then if you fast forward into the New Testament, in the city of Jerusalem, we have the Council of Jerusalem, we have James standing up, a dispute that has arisen over whether or not the Gentiles should be circumcised, and James quotes Amos, and he says again, I will rebuild, I will restore the tabernacle of David and repair it. Now, I want to draw your attention to something I think is significant. And when we get to the end of this, you'll see why. God never promised to restore the tabernacle of Moses. He never promised to restore the temple of Solomon. It's the tabernacle of David. And two times, once in the old and another time in the new. So let's ask the question, what in the world is the tabernacle of David? We need to work up to that. You can't understand the tabernacle of David until you get a look at the tabernacle of Moses. So let's just do a little bit of a review. I know you're familiar with this. Let's talk about the tabernacle of Moses. Moses is on Mount Sinai. God rips the heavens open. He sees this pattern of this building. All of it, of course, speaks of Christ in the church. And here it is. If you were there, you would walk into a gate, you would open the gate, and that's the outer court. It's a very large area. And the first thing you come to is what? Do you remember? The brazen altar. And that's where the sacrifices are made. After that, you meet the laver, where the priests wash their hands. Now, everybody who belongs to the Jewish race can penetrate the outer court. Even the poor, miserable layman can spend time in the outer court. But then there's another compartment, and that's the holy place. And only the priests can go in there. So the crowd gets a little bit smaller as you move ahead. And what's inside the holy place? Yeah, that thing right there. The lampstand of gold, the table of showbread, and then the altar of incense. But after that, you have a smaller compartment. There's a veil there. There's a good reason why there's a veil there. And behind the veil, there's only one piece of furniture. What is behind the veil? Raiders of the Lost Ark fans, you know what's behind the veil. It's the Ark of the Covenant. Now let me explain to you what the Ark of the Covenant is. It's a little golden box, about two and a half feet by three and a half feet. It's made of wood, and it's overlaid with gold. It's a golden box. And it has a lid on it that's made of solid gold. And the lid has a crown that goes all the way around. And on top of the lid, there are these two angelic beings called cherubim. And this is important. They have wings, feathers, and they're facing each other. And that ark also has rings, two rings on each side, where poles go through it, staves they're called. And that's for when the ark is transported. Now here's the interesting thing about that ark. God Almighty dwells on that ark. He sits on that seat. That seat is called what? Mercy. The mercy seat. It's called the mercy seat because that's where the blood is spilled on top of that seat. In fact, Hebrews calls it the throne of grace. It's God's throne. It's where he sits. Scripture often uses this phrase, the Lord of hosts who sits between the cherubim, who sits on top of the throne between the cherubim. And that is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, in whom all the fullness of the Godhead dwells. Wood and gold, humanity and deity. 
And that ark was the central feature. It was the most important thing to any Jew all throughout the Old Testament period, even into the New Testament. For us, it's a picture of Jesus Christ in His fullness. For them, God literally dwelt on it. He actually sat on it. Almighty God. It's a pretty powerful thing. It was to the Jew what Jesus is to us, God with us. It was their Emmanuel. And it was enclosed by a veil. Now, there's only one person that could enter into that, and that was the high priest. And as we heard earlier, the high priest could only enter into it one time, once a year, and he had to come with blood in his hands to sprinkle on the mercy seat. He had a blue robe on, and at the hem of his robe, there were little bells. And he had a rope tied around his ankle hoping the dudes outside were listening to the noise because if there was no noise there's no life and they had to drag him out because they could not enter into that veil so god did not like him or the sacrifice boom service is over church is dismissed the benediction. it's over bring him out all right so that's the tabernacle of moses now what provoked the tabernacle of david and what in the world was it we need to go on a little journey. When Joshua came into the land and brought God's people into the land, they took the tabernacle of Moses and they set it up in a city called Shiloh. And that's where it stayed for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now if we fast forward to the time of Jeremiah, this is 400 years after the death of David. Again, Israel is backslidden. They're committing idolatry. And the Lord tells Jeremiah, stand in front of the temple of Solomon and prophesy. And this is what I want you to say. And Jeremiah quotes the people of Israel. He says, you're going around saying, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. We got the temple of the Lord. Have you seen our bowling alley in the temple of the Lord? Have you seen our basketball court in the temple of the Lord? Have you seen our new TV program in the temple of the Lord? They were boasting about their building, taking pride in their programs, claiming that God was with them. And the Lord said through Jeremiah, you're trusting in lying words. I am going to forsake this building because you're living like hellions. You're committing idolatry. You don't care about me. All you're concerned about is your program, your denomination, your building, etc., etc. And then the Lord says this through Jeremiah, go back to Shiloh and see what I did there. If you don't believe me, go back to Shiloh. So let's go back to Shiloh, shall we? And find out what happened there. This is where we go on a sleigh ride down to the Tabernacle of David. We're in Shiloh, and we got a high priest named Eli. And he has two boys named Hophni and Phinehas. You know these boys. They're called the sons of worthlessness. Now, Eli is the high priest. And he and his two boys represent the clergy. They're the ministerial assassination of that time. Associate. They're the ministers, okay? They're the priesthood. Now, this is right before David is born, by the way. Uh, about 100 years before. And these two boys are wicked. They are sleeping with women at the tabernacle gate in Shiloh. They are roughing the people up, beating them up, taking their money. They're taking the portion that belongs to God, the fat. They're eating the fat. They're in the whole thing for name, game, and fame. 
They're playing a religious game and they're committing idolatry. This is the scene as we come into Shiloh. Now, Israel has always been victorious over their enemies. And one of their greatest enemies were the Philistines. And we got a battle now where the Philistines have invaded. And so Israel assumes that God's going to be with them as he always has been. So they send out their shock troops out to the, the battlefield. And something shocking happens. 4,000 of their best men are killed. So now they're stunned. They come running back to Shiloh. And somebody gets a word of wisdom. You know what the word is? Let's get God. Let's get God. We're losing the battle. Let's go get God. So Hophni and Phinehas get real religious. They penetrate the veil. They break 28 Levitical commandments. And they take the Ark of the Covenant. And they bring it out to the battle. We got God now. We got the program, brother. We got the box. <laughs> well, God has never lost the battle. But there's some he never showed up for. And he did not show up for this one. And on that day, 30,000 Israelites are slain by the Philistines. But that's not all. Hophni and Phinehas die. But something worse happens. The Philistines, the enemies of God, take the ark and they bring it back to their land. Now, nothing like this has ever happened. They got the box, brother. They took it back. That was their trophy. And Israel is horrified. They got God. They don't. There's weeping, there's crying, there's roaring. Eli hears it. He asks what's happening, and he's told the news. Now listen to what happens. Eli is overweight. The scripture says he's obese. He's blind. He could hardly see. And when he hears the news, Eli, we lost 30,000. He survives that. Eli, your two boys have been killed. He survives that. In fact, it was probably a relief. <laughs> they took the Ark of the Covenant. And his heart trembled for the Ark because he knew what that meant. And he fell backwards and his neck broke. Now Eli's physical condition represents the spiritual condition of Israel. They were fat. Now don't take condemnation with body weight. That's not the point. But they were at ease in Zion. They had God's blessing and they presumed on it and took it for granted. They were spiritually blind. And they were backslidden. And Phinehas's wife bears a child, and she calls him what? Ichabod. The glory has departed. Man, this is a sad, sad, sad day in the life of Israel. Is it not? Ichabod, the glory of God has departed. And the Psalms say this. And God forsook the tabernacle of Moses in Shiloh and delivered his strength into captivity and his glory into the enemy's hand. Wow. Now watch what happens. Let's go to the land of the Philistines. Watch the Lord Jesus Christ triumph over everything here. He's in the land of the Philistines. And those Philistines represent the spiritual wickedness in high places that war against the church. 
Here's the ark. They got the box. And the first place they bring it is to their stronghold capital city, Ashdod. And they put it in their temple where their, their god, their great program, Dagon, who is this fish, he's a fish man. He's got the head of a man, the hands of a man, the body of a fish. And they put it right before Dagon. They leave, they come back the next morning, and Dagon's on his face worshiping the little box. And watch what they do. Get up, get up, God, get up, get up. It's like the institutional church. God kills the program, and we're right there trying to prop it up. You know, come on, get up, get up. And so they pick it up, they leave, and on the third day, he's on his face, but that's not all. His head is smashed. His hands are broken. Not only that, but this is what happens. The men of Ashdod are coming down with plagues, tumors, and emrods. Does anybody know what emrods are? They're hemorrhoids. And, and there's no preparation H back then either. So this is what they do. The men of Ashdod, they get a word. And uh, they say, let's share this glory with our neighbors in Gath. So they, they take the ark and they give, they give a love treasure to the brothers and sisters in Gath. Oh, thank you very much. And all of a sudden, tumors and plagues and mice everywhere and emeralds all over the people. And so the, the brothers and sisters in Gath hear a message on stewardship and giving. And they say, well, let's give this ark. As we have been shown grace, we shall give it to others. Let's give it to our neighbors in Ekron. Isn't this a sharing, loving, communal people? So they bring it to Ekron. And they're like, oh, no, the ark of God. Get it away from us. Well, they take it anyway. And the same thing. The people in Ekron are dying like waves of grain and plagues and tumors and they bring their priests together and they come up with this idea now listen to this they say let's send the ark back to Israel <laughs> and they build a wooden cart a cart made of wood with wheels on it and they lynch it to two mama calves that have just calved and they send it off so now the ark is going back to Israel and we're in a little town called Beshemesh. There's probably 150, 200 people out there harvesting the wheat. And they lift their eyes up and they see the Ark of the Covenant coming back on this cart. And they start dancing and leaping and singing. And they're joyous. And it comes to them. They grab it. They take the cart. They break it up into firewood. They take the two calves. They offer them as sacrifices. And they do something really foolish. They pick the ark up. They put it on a big rock. And they open the lid. Because they want to see how God's doing. So they, they open the lid. And it's Raiders of the Lost Ark. Seventy men die within seconds. Now why did that happen? What's inside the ark? What's the first thing that went in there? The broken tablets of the law are in the ark. They removed the mercy seat, which had the blood on it. And God couldn't see the law because of the blood. But when they removed the mercy seat, they took the mercy off, and they looked straight into the law, and the law 
pills. They faced God in their own righteousness and boom, God could not violate. So they put that thing back on there. It gets, it gets carted back off to a town called Kiriath Jerem. It stays there for 20 years. And now we got a tabernacle of Moses that has all the furniture, all the fixtures, but there's no ark there. And it's in Shiloh. God left the tabernacle of Moses, which is in Shiloh. Now here's, here's something I want you to remember. For whatever reasons, we don't know why, but they take the tabernacle of Moses, which is in Shiloh, and they move it to a mountain called Gibeon. It still has no ark in it. In fact, the ark of God never returned to the tabernacle of Moses ever again. So it's sitting in this person's house. His name is Abinadab. And then there emerges a man after God's own heart. David. And he is the only one that has a heart that seeks after the ark. And his burden, his passion is to see the ark return to his rightful place in Jerusalem. Because that is the Lord in his fullness and in his glory. And he wants God to have a place to dwell in his city. Hallelujah. Nobody sought the ark of God during the days of Saul. It was darkness until David came. And this is the beginning of restoration. Now David is crowned king of Israel. And he says, let us go get the ark and bring it to Jerusalem. So he gets the people together. They go over to the house of Abinadab. And this is a great thing, isn't it? It's a good thing, isn't it? Yeah. To take the ark of God back to Jerusalem. Or to put it in Jerusalem. The place where the Lord would put his name. So now they get the ark. And they put it on a wooden cart. They build a wooden cart for the ark. And Abinadab's two boys, Yuza and Ohio, drive the cart one in the front, the other in the back. And David's leading the procession. And the children of Israel are rejoicing and they're dancing and they're singing and they have musical instruments. This is a full-blown Pentecostal meeting. I mean, if it was going on today, it would be on television. It was a big deal. So they're bringing the ark to Jerusalem. The ark comes to a threshing floor. Now, do you know what the threshing floor is? It's the place where the wheat and the chaff are separated. It's the place of testing. Every work of God has a threshing floor. Paul mentioned it when he talked to the Corinthians. He said, every work will be tested. So they're doing a good thing. And they're worshiping the Lord. Or when the cart hits the threshing floor, it starts to stumble. And Uzzah reaches out to steady it. And boom! He dies. And David is afraid. And he leaves. He leaves the ark. I'm not taking this back to my house. Forget it. He's afraid of the Lord. Now why did God do that? God said, you're not going to carry me out on something that you have developed. Where did they get the idea of the wooden cart? They got it from the heathen Philistines. It came from the heathen, ungodly Philistines. And they sought to bring God's glory out by the arm of the flesh and by the traditions of unbelieving heathens. And what David did is he began to go back and read the scrolls in the Old Testament and he found out how God chose to have his glory carried. The Lord was saying, I'm not going to be carried on a denomination. You're not going to carry my glory Amen. on a gimmick. 
You're not going to carry my glory on a program. You're not going to carry my glory on a Jesus Saves Nightlight. Or a What Would Jesus Do wristband. Or a, a building or a denomination. Or whatever your mind can conceive that you got straight out of the pagan pool. You will not carry me out on a wooden cart. For the result is death. Spiritual death. We got a lot of wooden carts today in the institution of Christianity, don't we? <clears throat> You'll read all about the wooden carts. There's a lot of them. They don't come from God's people. They come from unbelievers. But we use them to bring the glory of God. And this is the institutional church. This is the organized church. Wooden carts. David goes back and he begins to read the Old Testament scrolls and he learns some things. First of all, there's nothing about a wooden cart. God never ordained that. <laughs> Secondly, the ark was to be carried on the shoulders of sanctified Levites. And not only that, but it was to be covered. It was not to be seen by or exposed to the curious gaze of sinful men. It was to be covered. And David did something honorable. But watch this. He had a right motive. He had a right heart. But he didn't do it God's way. And you see, our Lord has ways. He has ways of doing things. And those ways are part of his very nature. They answer to his own nature. He has tendencies. And if we violate those tendencies, it brings spiritual death. David was honorable because you know what he did? He admitted he was wrong. Would to God that all the Christian leaders today Amen. would admit that they have been using wooden carts. Amen. David was the king of Israel. If he can do that, if he can do that, I won't finish the sentence. Well, it gets better. David gives it a second try. When David left, and he was fearful and so forth, some of the men took the ark and they brought it to a man named Obinadab in his home, and God blessed the man. And when David saw this, his fear left, and he said, let's bring the ark to Jerusalem. Now what he did is very significant. He picked a mountain in Jerusalem, and the name of that mountain was what? Zion. You've been singing about it. Zion. It's elevated above the other parts of Jerusalem. It's a little bit higher. It's just a dirt hill. But David said, this will be the place where God will dwell. And he pitched, listen to this, he built a building for God. Do you know what it was? It was a little canvas tent. Simple. Not very appealing. Not very aesthetic. like a garage. <laughs> Very small, absolutely. No appeal to it. It's just a canvas tent. And he said, we will bring the ark of God, the glory of the Lord, to Mount Zion in its rightful place in Jerusalem, and we will put it in this tent. So they get the ark, and all of Jerusalem's there. Now watch this. This is beautiful. There's total unity. All of God's people are one, and they have one pursuit. That's to bring the ark to Jerusalem so that God's glory can shine from Mount Zion. And they're all in it together. This is a, a completely corporate effort. And now the Levites are sanctified, and they shoulder the ark together, and every Levite participates in bringing the ark to Jerusalem. There's no wooden cart. There's not even a big shot here. They all have their hands full of the glory of God. There's nobody there trying to get a better camera angle. All right? They're not jockeying for position. They all have their hands full of the glory of God. They're sharing this 
glory as they bring it to the ascended hill and they're marching to Zion with the glory of God. And I'm going to tell you something. It is a joyous meeting. They're dancing. They're singing. They're praising. They're worshiping. I mean, this is the greatest visitation of God since the Garden of Eden. It's David's high point, and he's leading the way, and he is so full of passion for the Lord. And what the Lord is doing here at this moment, he takes off his kingly robes of dignity. He strips down to a linen ephod, which is the garment of a priest, and he dances freely before the Lord. This is a beautiful picture. And the closer they get to Zion, the louder it gets. The more rejoicing there is, the more singing there is. But there's somebody looking through a window at what's going on. This person's not down there participating. They're looking at it and they're analyzing it. Not only are they analyzing it, they're criticizing it. And do you know who that person was? That's his own wife, Michael. She's watching this go on. She's watching her husband freely give himself to the Lord and she's despising him and the whole thing. And you know what she's thinking? Doesn't he care what they will think about us? Well, what would the Ministerial Association think about this? <laughs> Lose our reputation. My goodness, they're going to think we're a cult. Does he not know? Does he not care? Look at him parading himself like that in front of the young women. This is going to hurt our retirement. That's all she cares about. She's not down there participating. She's up there analyzing and criticizing. They bring the ark into Zion and they place it, listen to this, in that canvas tent all by himself in a little tabernacle on Mount Zion. David goes back home to bless his family and Michael confronts him. And she unleashes this venomous spirit against him and says, How glorious was the king today! You were like an exhibitionist. In front of the fair maidens, they watched you make a fool of yourself. And I love David's response. He was very reserved. And he said, Think that's something, huh? Well, you just reload your girl. It was before the Lord who chose me ruler of all the people above your father that I played before him. And then he said, if you think that was something, if that bothered you, well, I will be yet more vile than this. And you know what happened to her? She was smitten with barrenness. She did not have a child after that time. I have an idea why that was. David would not have intimacy with her anymore. She was still part of the family. He didn't divorce her but he would not know her anymore. She was cut off from intimacy because she analyzed and criticized the Lord's work. Who is Michael? Who's Michael? She's the daughter of a king, King Saul. She's the wife, the bride of the king of Judah. She's the bride of David. She was the passion of David's heart. He would not be crowned king of Israel until Michael was given to him. And she was the purchase of blood. Blood was shed to obtain her hand. Saul said, 100 Philistine foreskins, then I'll give you my daughter. Daughter of a king, bride of a king, purchase of blood, 
passion of David's own heart. She's a Christian. Paul said that I may know him. You know what that word know means? It means the highest union that two people can have. He's talking about the fact he wants to go behind the bridal chamber and be one with his Lord. He wants to know him just as Adam knew Eve and Eve knew Adam. She was cut off from that. Well, here's what we have. We got a strange situation. We got two tabernacles going on at the same time. Over in Mount Gibeon, we got the tabernacle of Moses. Over in Mount Zion, we got the tabernacle of David. Now watch this. This is, to me, this is so awesome. Let's go over to Gibeon. Let's watch out what's happening there. Let's just check it out. They got the special priesthood. They're slinging blood over there at the brazen altar. You know, they're going through the program. They're passing out the bulletin. They're lighting the candles. They're ringing the bells. They're preaching the sermon. They're following the ritual. But there's no ark there. God is not there. Does that bother them? Why no? No. They just keep going through the ritual. They keep moving. I mean, you know, the organized church is the only business that can be out of business and still be in business. I mean, they just adapt. And then they adapt their theology. It was for back then, but it's not for today. And so they just they go through the whole ritual. And there's order. And God's people, they cannot draw near. Worship is far off in the tabernacle of Moses in Gibeon. Nobody can penetrate anything else but the outer court. But there's no life. There's no glory. You know, I don't, I don't only think of the organized church when I see this. I think of the house church movement and many of the ways it's expressed. God gave the tabernacle of Moses to the children of Israel, did he not? The pattern came from him. Well, listen to this rhetoric. Well, you know, we're following the pattern of the New Testament. We got elders. We meet in homes. We have the Lord's Supper as a meal. We don't have a building. We meet in the house. So what? So what? That's right, because the wineskin has wine in it. If it doesn't have wine, it's an empty shell. And that's what Gibeon is. But six miles away, listen, only six miles away, on another hill, we got a cult over there. We got a weird house meeting. Let's go over to Zion and see what's going on. There's pandemonia going on over here. People are free. They're worshiping. They're singing. They're full of joy. And guess what? The Ark of the Covenant is right there. There's no veil. It's open to all the people. And not just the priests, but all of God's people are there worshiping the Lord face to face, staring at the glory which is in the face of Jesus Christ. They're right there. They have intimacy with the Lord. And nobody's dying. And they're not even afraid. And guess what? That's not all. While they're slinging blood over there in the tabernacle of Moses in Gibeon, there's no blood sacrifices in Zion. There was only one sacrifice when David brought the ark into Jerusalem. He dedicated it, and it was once and only once, never again. And they had no consciousness of sin at all. They were free, they were in liberty, and they were worshiping God who sat on that ark enthroned in the midst of the cherubim with open face. And the worship, the singing went on 24 hours a day on the hour 
for 40 years. And that's why when you read the Psalms, he talks about, Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of... That's the night shift. They had worship and singing and praising going on all the time in the tabernacle of David. This is incredible. What is this? This is the new covenant right smack dab in the Old Testament era. It's phenomenal. But it even gets better than that. And this is what touches my heart the most. A large chunk of your psalms were written during this time period. And you will have a new book of psalms. Let me help you out here. I want you to see David nestled in his tabernacle one inch away from the ark, snug right close under the shadow of the wings of the cherubim. And he pulls out his pen and he says, He that dwells in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Hey, you got to be close to something to be under its shadow. He's right there in the midst of God. God's glory is right there overshadowing him. He says, I will dwell in thy tabernacle all the days of my life and I will trust in the covering of your wings. What? wings. The wings of the cherubim where God sits. Right in the midst of it. And then all those passages about Zion that we sing and we don't know what we're talking about. You know, We're marching in Zion. What does that mean? Zion? You know why Zion's important? Because the ark is there. God's glory shines out of Zion. The beauty of perfection comes out of Zion and fills the whole earth. God dwells in Zion and He is great in Zion. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain, Mount Zion, of His holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth. In His presence is fullness of joy. That's why they had joy because God's glory shined out of Zion and they were exposed to it, unveiled, uncovered, without any obstacle. A full functioning priesthood where all of God's people were there touching the Lord in an intimate way and ministering to Him. Without a priesthood. Now read your Psalms again. And every time he talks about, I will take refuge under the shadow of thy wings. Remember him sitting in that little canvas tent underneath the shadow of the ark. And brothers and sisters, what is this a picture of? What's a picture of? The tabernacle of David is the church. You have come to Mount Zion. Not Sinai, not Gibeon, not Shiloh. You have come to Mount Zion where the presence and the glory and the fullness of the Lord which is in Jesus Christ is accessible, available, and can be touched and experienced 24 hours a day, not just for 40 years, but forever. God's glory comes out of Zion. Praise the Lord. It's church life. Liberty, freedom, joy, and an experience with the Lord that continues. So we got two tabernacles. Gibeon, the tabernacle of Moses, and Zion, the tabernacle of David. Which one do you want to have? Which one do you have? Praise the Lord. That really is the issue. It's interesting to note that when you read the Psalms, there are five places that talk about thy tabernacles, plural. Two orders of worship, two tabernacles, two ways to worship the Lord. An old order and a new order. And the prophet said, I will restore the tabernacle of David. And James repeated it. 
I will restore the tabernacle of David. What's the Lord doing now? He's restoring the tabernacle of David. Praise the Lord. And thank God we have been privileged to be in the experience of it. Praise the Lord. Amen. One last word. If I can put a fine point on it, I would say this. The ark and the tabernacle always go hand in hand. You can't have the ark without the tabernacle, and you can't have the tabernacle without the ark. You cannot have Christ without the church. You can't have the church without Christ. But, in order to be in the right tabernacle, always follow the ark. Hi, friends. Frank here. Thanks for listening to the message. I hope you were electrified by it. If you were, you may be interested to know that this message on the Tabernacle of David is part of a masterclass which contains 29 messages. The masterclass is called Exquisite Passion, A Deeper Journey into God's Eternal Purpose. And the other messages were delivered in conferences, and they're on the same level as the one you just heard. If you are interested in getting the entire series of messages in that masterclass, you want to go to thedeeperchristianlife.com. And when you go there, on the top menu, you will see a join link. Just click that, and that will explain everything to you. The network opens up for registration several times a year, so make sure you join the waitlist and put your email address in correctly. Some of the other master classes on the network, which contain conference messages as well, are Spiritual Graffiti, Galatians in 3D, Everlasting Domain, Restoring the Kingdom Message, Beautiful Pursuit, Lessons on Knowing the Lord, Rough Diamonds, The Path to Transformation, Untraceable Riches, Ephesians in 3D, Atomic Freefall, Becoming Strong in the Broken Places, Day Moves, 1 Thessalonians in 3D, and others which are queued up to be released. I hope you'll join us on the network. It contains my best work, and the Christians that are on it are the salt of the earth. God bless.